Collaborative communities are a form of social network that provide access to insights, opportunities, and resources. But to benefit, you must become a member. In other words, you must be prepared to engage in social networking. Why are some people more reluctant to network than others? That's the title of an article in the October 2021 issue of Kellogg Insight, which featured research co-authored by Professor Tixin Tao at Stony Brook University. I asked Professor Tao about her work and her thoughts regarding how we might encourage the participation of those who might otherwise underinvest in their social networks. You've described your research as being at the intersection of trust, technology, culture, and social networks. What does that mean to you? My research interest can be generally summarized into two areas. The first is how do social and cultural factors such as multicultural experiences, socioeconomic status, and the network influence individual psychology, behavior, and interpersonal dynamics. And the second, how do technology influence the way that we think, behave, and interact? I become very interested in these topics because I'm just uh, generally interested in anything related to culture. I'm interested in technology because technology is a main driver of culture change. Now, in a recent paper, you described a process by which high-status people tend to accumulate broader, deeper, more productive social networks than low-status people. Could you summarize that, that process and what do you think are the key implications of your research? High-status people tend to have larger social network. This is a very robust finding in the literature. Previously, people tend to explain it in two different ways. One is they are more likely to be embedded in larger network. And the second is that because they are high status, other people are more likely to actively reach out to them. So that also makes them to end up having larger network. We want to take a different approach we think that in addition to these two mechanisms, high status people also have some agency in this process. So instead of the passive roles that previous literature described, we found that high status people are also more likely to engage in, in active networking. And these more active behaviors also leads them to have larger network. This is the first main finding of our paper. And the second is that this does not apply to all the high status people. You will only see this pattern for high status people who thinks that their status is an indicator of their quality, which we call status quality coupling. So only for those people, status leads to greater networking tendency and the larger network size. But if your uh, status quality coupling belief is low, we actually don't see the effect. So in other words, this kind of high status and more active networking behavior is enabled by the belief in status and quality coupling. The third main finding is that we found the mechanism because for high status people, they believe that their status is an indicator of their quality. That's why they think, oh, I actually have a lot to offer in this relationship. If I reach out to you, you're more likely to be very receptive instead of reject me. These kind of psychological process leads those high status people more likely to reach out and end up having larger network. 
in contrast, for those high-status people, does not believe in status and quality coupling. They don't feel that they have so much value to offer. They feel like uh, their requests are more likely to be rejected. So that's making them to more reluctant, more uncomfortable to reach out. Did your research shed light on any domains where it was more or less likely that people would believe or have confidence in the status quality coupling? This is a really interesting question. So I think we can approach this concept in two different ways. First is that are there some individuals tend to have high or low coupling belief or are some environments more likely to make people believe in quality coupling? So I think that it could be individual differences or it could be environmental differences. Let's turn to technology and Mm -hmm. the impact it has on psychology. I'm very interested in the the role technology mediation plays in social networking, in particular, the conditions under which technology could exacerbate or mitigate the, the effects that you found. Have you looked into the role of technology in this process? When we think about how technology will change our networking behavior, I think one platform that plays a central role here is LinkedIn. Previously, you get to know your contacts through personal referrals. And now all these people's information are available online. How does that change the pattern that we network or our likelihood to use these available resources? We actually are not very positive. These kind of new technology will reshift the status pattern. Based on what we found, we think the critical part here is how much they feel comfortable to reach out for high status people that feel they have a lot to offer they might end up more actively using LinkedIn to reach out. For low status people, if they feel that their reaching out behaviors will likely be rejected by the other party, they might not use it that much in in any kind of networking. People's likelihood to use resources are not the same. What do we do about that? How do we help people utilize social networking opportunities and tools and contribute to the the conversation. One thing we think is very important is to define value in more diversified ways. Do not just have one way to define what is value. In organization, it could be typically just your performance or your seniority. If that's the case, only one group of people will be defined as valuable. But if we try to define value in a diversified ways, and we are able to make those low status people feel that I also can have something value to offer in this relationship, they will become more willing to network. For example, a junior marketing associate might not have very high performance because they don't have a lot of experiences. On the other side, they can actually contribute a lot in terms of cultural knowledge about what's going on. Once they realize they have this kind of value to offer, this sense of self-value can help them to feel more comfortable to network. One dilemma that we often see in professional work context is people just have such a strong tendency to be affiliated 
to choose those people who are similar to them. On the other side, we know if we often work with the same kind of people, we will have groupthink, we will lose creativity if we look at how people think about social relations. There are two kinds of beliefs. One is a fixed belief, the other is growth belief. For the fixed belief, people tend to think relationships are fixed. Whether you like this person or not is not going to change. They look for things like chemistry. We often hear people say, we're just not the same kind of people. It just wouldn't work. For growth theory, they think they're not fixed. It actually can grow. Even though you and I don't get along at the very beginning, with effort, if we are willing to solve the conflict, we might end up developing a very good relationship at the end. My co-author and I found the fixed theory people are more likely to form similar ties. Growth theory people are less likely to be influenced by similarity. In other words, if we are able to train people to have this growth theory mindset, people are more likely to overcome the tendency to choose similar people to collaborate or to be friends. I think it could be a really effective and a promising intervention to create a diverse network. What are the questions you're wrestling with now? What are the research questions that, that drive you today? One research question that always got me very interested is that, do we have some different types of metacognition of network? I think it might have something to do with our culture that we grow up with. For example, people will describe U.S. people's social network is very loose. You have a big uh, uh, network, but all the people are loosely connected. In contrast is the East Asian type of network, which is a very tight network. Everybody knows each other. So these are very different types of network. What I want to study is that for these two kinds of cultures, will that lead to different kinds of network metacognition? Mm-hmm. 